Hey everybody, this is Chuck. Before we get started today, just want to remind you that Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, a Strong Town's approach to transportation, is coming out on September 8th. You can go right now and uh, get a bunch of promo stuff we've got set up, including like advanced copies, I'm cutting videos, uh, 30 days of uh, confessions, a bunch of other stuff that pre-sale people get. If you go to confessions.engineer, uh, that's the website, www.confessions.engineer. Uh, get signed up there and we'll let you know when the book tour is coming near you. We'll let you know where you can get those special offers. We'll keep you informed and in the loop. I'm really excited. I just sent the final edits to the, the printer. So this thing is really going to happen. Thanks, everybody. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I'm not sure where this one is gonna go. I, I have a page of chicken scratch here. I just wanna talk today. And if you've been with us for a while, you remember this long stretch we had last summer where I didn't do a podcast. I think it was like two months or something like that. If you remember, I'd had a bit of a, <laughs> I was gonna say a, a bit of an accident, a, a, a bit of an accident. <laughs> I had a concussion and uh, had some uh, brain brain trauma stuff I was working through last summer. And I recorded a bunch of podcasts during that time, but we didn't run them. And we didn't run them because of me. I kind of felt like there were some alarm bells going off in my brain that th this is just a crazy man ranting, like, stop, stop doing that. You're you're not doing a very good job here. And I ultimately took like a couple of weeks off and, and did nothing, like literally did nothing to kind of just allow my brain to rest. And, and that helped a lot. And I'm a lot better now. But I think about some of those things that I was ranting about <laughs> back then. And some of them seem maybe a little less crazy today. I, I want to get to one of those. The, the first though, I want to frame this conversation by talking about the second Gulf War. Those of you that are young uh, might not think of the Gulf War as the second Gulf War. Uh, but for me, it, it was the second Gulf War. I, I graduated from high school in 1991, but in 1990, I joined the army on my 17th birthday. At the end of May uh, in 1990, I joined the army. I was at, at one point and you know, no one said this to me, but I know it for a fact because it's statistically possible, impossible to be younger than me and legally be in the military. I, because I joined on my 17th birthday, that was the youngest day you possibly could. I, at one point, I was the youngest person in the U.S. military at that point. I did, between my junior and senior year, I did basic training. I went back and went to high school. You know, second summer, then I did my advanced training. But in, in that first summer, that was when Iraq invaded Kuwait. And, you know, we were at basic training and they came out and told us all, you know, we're going to war. <laughs> and back then, different than today, it was male and female only. So I was with all men and they said, boys, we're going to war. You know, you're going straight from here to the Gulf. And, and they, these guys were all excited, you know, cause that's, uh, that's what you do in the army. I, I was, I was less excited, but you know, I was going to do what I had to do. We didn't go to war. We got sent home at the end of our training. And then uh, the first Gulf War, which started on January 15th. And I just, I remember the day it was like, you know, the day that was supposed to, they were supposed to withdraw. It was the final deadline. And I think the whole military uh, incursion lasted like uh, hundred hours or something like that. It was in one way, like a demonstration of American force and superiority coming out of the Cold War. All of a sudden we were like the unrivaled superpower and look at what we did to what was like the third or fourth largest land army in the world. We routed them in not weeks, not months, you know, hours, hours. We completely routed them and lost like a hundred people in the process to, you know, their thousands. And in terms of like military victories, it was one of these kind of hubris inducing events. You know, we had had the Malays of Vietnam, uh, helicopters crashing in the desert in Iranian hostage rescue. 
we had had these, you know, minor things in, in Grenada and Panama and what have you during the, uh, you know, during, um, I think Panama was before the Gulf War, but during the Reagan and Bush administrations, and then you had the Gulf War, and all of a sudden it was like, you know, America is back, right? And I remember feeling that at the time, you know, I was a young man and I was a proud soldier and I come from a patriotic part of the country, uh, a country that has a disproportionate level of, of people in the military. Uh, we had our flag day celebration this week and the city was full of flags and, uh, you know, full of veterans walking around in uniform. And I mean, that's, I, I don't live anywhere near a military base. I don't live, you know, in, in, it's not like I live near a, a major installation or something like that, but we just, you know, that's the way we're kind of wired here. So to me, that first Gulf war was like, yeah, America's back. We're a great country, USA, USA, you know, all that. So we get to nine 11 and I think for those of you who, and it's amazing now uh, to think that there are people alive who don't remember 9-11 as a living memory, but of course, you know, my children who are intelligent enough to have, you know, really interesting conversations now as 16 and 14 year olds, they have no recollection of 9-11 at all. It's a historical event. Uh, a lot of you were too young to actually remember it. I was in graduate school at the time. I don't think I had experienced something as traumatic as event as that. And of course I was in Minnesota. I wasn't even in New York. You know, I have friends who were in New York who won't talk about it still. This was a huge thing. And I, my grandmother passed away that year, 2001. And of course she had lived through World War II and, and Pearl Harbor. And she was sick with cancer at the time. She passed away in November. And so it was the last couple months of her life. And we just didn't burden her with it. Like we shut the TV off around her and she didn't get any of the, any of that news. It's like, why add to her tension? But I remember talking to my grandfather who, who lived another decade beyond that. And I mean, he served in World War II. He was a Marine. And a lot of this brought back for him the kind of surprise of the Pearl Harbor attack and the idea that Yes, there's tension. Yes, there's anxiety. Yeah, we could see us, you know, getting into it someday with the Japanese. And then all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, there's this attack and thousands of people dead. And the country was one way. And then the next day, the country was another way. And you went from, you know, a population that was something like 90 plus percent do not get into foreign wars, non-interventionists stay home to a country that was, we're gonna to go to war with Japan and we're gonna win. I don't know if 9-11 was that, and I don't know historically if it will be remembered that way. I certainly don't know as it changed our you know, opinions as much. I remember when George W. Bush ran for office, and one of the things that he said, it was a Republican talking point at the time, is we don't wanna be the policemen of the world. Bill Clinton was looked at as having less respect for the military than he should have and being willing to, in a sense, use the military for, you know, liberal aims, if we want to put it that way, or at least for, you know, uh, not for, uh, as I, I remember, you know, at the time people like Rush Limbaugh saying, you know, the military is about killing people and breaking things. And I believe that, I mean, I was in the military, you know, don't send them around to be peacekeepers. Don't send them around to hand out food and, and you know, be humanitarians. We've, we've got the UN for that. We've got the Peace Corps for that. We've got other groups for that. The military should be in there to break things and, and kill people and basically like take ground and occupy. And we'll let all the other people do the happy, peaceful stuff. There was a sense that Bill Clinton had endangered the lives of American soldiers by putting troops into Bosnia and Haiti and, and other places as peacekeepers. And peacekeepers was, in, in right-wing talk for sure, a euphemism for target. The left in this country, particularly at that time, had always been seemingly in my lifetime a, a little bit skeptical of military power. And so Clinton was a very strange president in this sense. But I remember when George W. Bush ran for office, one of his talking points, I was just gonna say it, and I, I don't wanna trigger everybody here into checking out of this, but I was gonna say almost Trump-like 
Because <laughs> Trump was in many ways, I mean, who knows what he really stands for, but uh, in his random talkings, one of the things that came up again and again was an anti-interventionist streak. I think that that is there in Republican politics. And so, you know, George W. Bush in 2000, in that election cycle, came across as very anti-interventionist. He was... Um, you know, not interested in getting us in these kind of foreign wars and keeping our troops home and respecting them and, and not having them be peacekeepers, AKA targets. So 9-11 happens. And, you know, right away, there's this sense of, uh, I'm gonna use the word vengeance. And I, I don't think that is the wrong word, right? Uh, like I, I don't, I think there was this sense that Afghanistan, the whatever you know government was there was harboring Osama bin Laden and his Al Qaeda fighters. They were not you know part of the, the upstanding nations of the world who would work together to root out this kind of thing. And so you're either with us and against us, and you're not with us. So we're going into Afghanistan to take out Osama bin Laden. And of course, that didn't go according to plan. I mean, Osama bin Laden was not uh, captured or killed during George W. Bush's administration, certainly not during that incursion into Afghanistan. You know, I think we learned something there about, about the limits of our capacity, uh, particularly in, in terrain like that. But that, that wasn't going to stop a country that had been so successful in the first, in, in the Gulf War at that point, later would be the first Gulf War. And I think had had these, uh, you know, competent, yet I think questionably deployed military incursions since then uh, from, you know, believing they could do some things in Afghanistan. And so cruise missiles were launched and troops were sent. And, and uh, you know, we overthrew that government in a very short period of time with some CIA operatives and a, and a handful of Green Berets and, and then set up shop and have been there, you know, to one degree or another ever since. This brings us to what I think is historically going to be seen of as a very strange event of the second Gulf War, you know, the second war with Iraq, very different than the first. And, you know, we're 13 minutes into this podcast or a dozen minutes in, I'm taking the time to get here because I, I want people to respect, particularly you who were not alive then, and this was not part of your thing, like what was going on? Um, the whole conversation at the time was about terrorism and the idea that you know terrorists could knock down the twin towers in new york city using airplanes imagine what they could do with biological weapons imagine what they could do with chemical weapons and i remember just you know the terror in americans minds at the time that you know you were going to wake up one day and there would be a, a biological attack in the country and there'd be thousands of people, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people dying. You, The, the show 24 was very popular at the time and, and I, I loved it. I mean, I watched it. I thought it was great. I, I still think it's a good, the concept was so interesting and it was kind of a fun show. But, you know, you, you, they would kind of highlight or personify these fears of the day. And I remember like the screen, the digital screen, and it'd be like, you know, what the president would be like, what will the death toll be from this? And they're like, it could be, you know, and da, 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 all these like bodies would start to be showed up on the screen. And it's like 10 million people. And you're like, oh my gosh. So make 9-11 look like a walk in the park, right? So the idea was we need to be really hypervigilant about weapons of mass destruction. And, you know, the world's number one bad guy, number one proliferator, number one, the country that was most likely to have them and give them to terrorists was Iraq. And so there was this whole kind of narrative built around the need to go in and basically make Iraq give up their weapons of mass destruction. Spoiler alert, they didn't have any weapons of mass destruction. But that didn't keep us from putting together this entire narrative. I know this has been look back at, and there's all kinds of, you know, oh, there were whistleblowers here and there who were saying, you know, raising red flags. And there were people who were suggesting, but th this was basically like the country ready to go do this. In fact, Colin Powell, 
who I, I think, you know, at the time, if you would have said, who is our most esteemed public figure, it would have been him. And I think in many ways, deservedly so. And I think today he would still probably rank up there, although he took a huge hit because he was the one who went to the United Nations as a secretary of state, former general in, in the first Gulf War, much admired figure, went to the UN and made the case that there needed to be a war against Iraq to eliminate their capacity to create weapons of mass destruction and spread them around. And, and he famously sat there and held like a, a vial of whatever, uh, you know, inert thing, but said, you know, it's a vial this big of whatever agent that we think they have could kill thousands of people, you know, here in New York City. And it was very dramatic. I watched it. And I, I remember at the time, you know, I was out of the military by then. I tried to sign back up after 9-11, but they... They wanted this like long commitment. It was really very strange. And then they did these stop loss orders and all this stuff. But I had buddies who were still in. And I remember thinking like, like yeah, we, we need to go to war with Iraq. I remember being on board with that. And there were some people who were not. Paul Wellstone, uh, the senator from Minnesota, famously was not. Dick Durbin, I think, from, from Wisconsin, I think he was part of the, uh, the famously I am not you know group. This upstart named Barack Obama was kind of risking his entire political career by being against this. People who were kind of safer or wanted to kind of walk a, a more, what I would say is uh, accepted line. People like John Kerry and Hillary Clinton were uh, not like, you know, as pro-war as, you know, a Dick Cheney or a, even George W. Bush, but certainly supported it and saw the need for it and spoke out for it and voted for it. So it, it was one of these things where if you read the New York Times or the Washington Post, if you were watching CNN or anything that was mainstream, the gist of the conversation, the, the thrust of our national dialogue was there is unquestionably bad people in running Iraq. Uh, they want weapons of mass destruction and they have built them in the past. They have never come fully clean and there's all these reasons to suspect that they still have them. We need to do a preemptive war with Iraq to root out weapons of mass destruction. This was a disaster. And at the time, I was starting to read Nassim Taleb. And Nassim Taleb really, I think, helped me understand, I mean, a lot of things in life, but in particular, why this was such a disaster. Let's say, militarily, this was a huge success right? As a military uh, incursion, you know, we had troops in Iraq. We had troops uh, that we were, did we bring troops in through Turkey? I, I know we were looking at Northern troops and I, I don't think we pulled that one off, but, you know, basically we built this kind of tiny coalition, uh, coalition of the cajoled. The first Gulf War was the coalition forces. Uh, it was like everybody in the world saying to Iraq, you can't do this. But in, in the second Gulf War, it was a, a smaller group. But we went in and we were going to, you know, take out uh, the government and we were going to eliminate their ability to create weapons of mass destruction. The war went very quickly. There's this famous scene where the president, George W. Bush, is on the ship and they hung up this banner that says mission accomplished because, you know, the mission as it was set out had been accomplished. But what everybody uh, underestimated, besides the fact that there were no weapons of mass destruction, you know, certainly no stockpiles, no capacity to make them. That was not there. Uh, what everybody underestimated was the fallout from this, the, the, the idea that there would be so much rancor, despair, anti-Americanism, people blowing themselves up, uh, fights between Shiites and Sunnis, that all of a sudden we, we were going to be in the middle of. And Colin Powell actually was the one who said, you know, you break it, you pay for it. Uh, you go in and break this country, you're responsible for it's reconstruction. You're responsible for putting it back as some type of a coherent place and coherent state. I think today, you know, the instability of the Middle East, and you know, it's been relatively stable uh, recently, but but a long period of instability can be directly traced back to this incursion in the Second Gulf War. And I I think also, you know, the the high minded idea of we will just create these democracies. And, you know, the Middle East, these tyrannies will fall one after another after another. 
has proven to be, you know, not only not true, but not true at the cost of hundreds of thousands of civilian lives that might even be in the millions of civilian lives. I, I, I don't really know, but I know at least hundreds of thousands in Syria, in Yemen, in Iraq, in Iran, the tension continues today. I spent the time telling this story because it is an example of where I bought into the top-down narrative. I bought into the idea that this was something we needed to do. I remember I had a friend at the time who was very skeptical of this, and I remember talking to her on the phone and having these conversations, and, and, and I would say, you know, we are the only people in the world who can do this. You know, we're a, we're a very strong country. We're, we're positioned to do good for the world. And I remember thinking that, you know, Saddam Hussein is, is unequivocally bad. Him having weapons of mass destruction is clearly bad. Him, you know, harboring people who could be terrorists or have links to terrorists, really bad. And, and because of all these bad things, we need to, you know, quote unquote, save the world. And, and because we're the only real superpower left, we actually have not just the capacity to do this, but the, the responsibility to do this. I bought into the top-down narrative, right? Uh, without considering any of the other ramifications of this or any of the other outfalls of this. So now we're going to get to my rant from last summer. Last summer was the pandemic, right? We were in the midst of it. It's interesting because here in my part of the world, we were not suffering from it at all uh, last summer. We had a little bit in the spring. We had these mild things uh, throughout the summer. In the fall, things started to pick back up. And then we got hit with the, the second, you know, the quote unquote second wave really was our first wave, our first big wave that came, you know, around Halloween and, and slightly thereafter when we moved indoors. The South in the U.S. was having a big thing when they moved indoors in the summer. Uh, with air conditioning and, and the summer heat. But our thing came when we moved back indoors uh, and started to do, you know, our predominant activities inside uh, when it came to fall and then, and then early winter. Part of my frustration last summer can now be kind of summarized with what is now being called the lab leak hypothesis. This idea that COVID-19 originated from a lab Hold your knee-jerk reactions on that for a moment because it, it, it has turned into or it has been or has been the entire time like a political meme back and forth. I can't say that I'm completely immune from the politics of stuff, but I, I build up a healthy skepticism of it where I really don't pay. I mean, I certainly don't pay day-to-day -day attention to it and I've kind of built some buffers to myself where I hope, you know, I'm not affected by the political spin of things, but I know there's a lot of political spin and always has been about the origins of COVID-19. You know, Trump calling it the China virus, haha, -ha, and, uh, you know, all the insanity around that. And last summer, I was deeply upset, and I was having a hard time kind of working through some of the things that I saw going on in my brain. For, for example, reports and, and, and insisting from scientists in, in all kinds of things, including uh, publications like The Lancet, which is you know, a very prestigious uh, medical journal, people who were saying that COVID-19 could not possibly have come from a lab. And I remember having this debate and this discussion because it's one thing to say that it didn't come from a lab or we don't believe that it came from a lab or that there's no evidence that it came from a lab. Those things are all statements that, you know, while having various degrees of, of credibility, you know, you can at least, like, at least our credible statement, like, you know, our, can be supported by someone with a scientific mind and, and, and evidence and, and what have you. But to say that it could not have come from a lab is just not a true statement. It's not a true statement today. It wasn't a true statement then. And, and it was being made all the time. And I remember I just, I started like a worksheet of like quotes of people who had said this. And some, a lot of them were scientists who were saying this. And it bothered me and it bothered me deeply because I'm like, that is not possibly true. Let me delve into that just briefly uh, without getting all, uh, you know, crazy on, on you, uh, rant round two. The idea to say that it could not have possibly come from a lab. If you had you know, coronavirus in nature 
and you were studying viruses in nature and you had extracted it from a bat or a pangolin or whatever animal you wanted to, and you brought that into a lab and then someone in the lab was infected with it, like the next day, you would not know if that infection came from you know, zoonotic transfer in nature or if it came from the lab. There's nothing about the virus itself, like looking at its DNA sequence. There's nothing about it that would tell you this passed through a lab or it did not pass through a lab. And so the idea, it basically at that point is indistinguishable from a virus in nature. You could not say this did not come from a lab. Like it was a statement that was not possible to make, yet people were making it over and over and over again. It, it set off all kinds of red flags for me. There, there's another one. People who said this could not have been engineered. The, the coronavirus could not have been engineered. COVID could not have been engineered in a lab. And I'm like, I, I don't get how you could possibly make that statement, even though it was made time and time and time again by scientists who were, you know, in the know or in the biz or close to this, they're saying it could not possibly be engineered in a lab as if engineering in a lab had some like sticker that went along with it or some like telltale marker. Now you could say it doesn't look like it's been engineered in a lab or it looks like it's zoonotic in origin. But the way these things are done in a lab is the same way that the people who are into like the genetic food debate have been having this discussion all the time, you know, is your corn engineered in a lab or not? Well, today there's lab work that goes on with corn, but the way we got corn, like original corn, you know, maize that uh, Native Americans had that they shared, you know, shared with us and taught uh, with Europeans when they came over in the 1400s and 1500s, that maize uh, was something that Native Americans had cultivated for thousands of years. They had taken small little uh, ears of corn and they had bred them or mixed them with ears that performed well. They had taken those seeds and cross-pollinated them with other seeds. And they had created not, uh, you know, completely out of nature, but created uh, basically using natural processes they had created something that, you know, if you went back uh, 1,500 years ago today and look at our, our corn then and look at corn today, we now have super corn. Was that created in a lab? No, right? Was it created using like, you know, processes of uh, natural selection? N no, it was, it was man-made. It was man-derived. We ran these experiments. We mixed stuff together and then we chose the ones that did best and we had them go on to the next round and then we mixed them together and we had the ones that performed best out of that go on to the next round and we did that over and over again for thousands of years. That's basically what they do in a lab. They take a virus, they mix it with other things, they see what happens, they take the ones that perform the best and the best might be the most virulent or the, have the greatest amount of passage. These things would not necessarily have markers that would signify, hey, this was made in a lab. It could very much resemble a zoonotic virus, right? And so these statements bothered me. They bothered me deeply. I take the, my concussive state, right? Like my foggy brain. If you've ever had a concussion, it really is a very strange thing because you're there and your brain works and you're thinking, but it doesn't fully work. It's obvious that there's things missing. Last summer, my wife would hold up things around the house and she'd say, what is this? And I remember the one that just bothered me the most was spatula. Like I did not know the name for a spatula. You know, I'm like, I don't, I don't know what that is. You know, and I couldn't remember the word. Once you say the word, it like reconnects the synopsis again and you can remember it. But at the time I couldn't. So at the time, my brain's a little foggy and I'm like, none of this sounds right to me right? Like this, this is not the scientific process as I know it and understand it. This is something else. And people who are making these statements are not making statements of scientific fact. They're doing something else. And it really bothered me. Now we were in, you know, this like crazy Trump episode and, and, you know, people were taking, if Trump said, uh, today is Monday, there was going to be a, a chorus of people who said, Hell no, it's not Monday. It's got to be some other day because, you know, you can't you can't possibly say anything true and we can't possibly agree with anything you say. 
you know, there was that insanity and, and I'm, I'm kind of giving everybody a pass on that because I think the insanity spread uh, far beyond just the presidency. It, it spread throughout our society and we all said crazy things and uh, I'm, I'm not going to make myself immune from that. I think everybody said crazy things in reaction. Hopefully now things are a little less crazy and we can talk about some of these things. Matt Inglesias, when the lab leak started to resurface and, and become a credible conversation now uh, coming out of the Biden administration, you know, he wrote this article and it was really, it was very interesting. He said, you know, like this has some origins. It, it, it never should have been dismissed in the first place. There's some reason to think this, but you know, why does it matter? It, it really wouldn't have changed how we would have handled the virus. And I, I don't think that's true, right? Obviously it matters because we shouldn't be doing the type of research that would manufacture and create viruses like this that could get out of a lab. But I think even going back, right, you know, the people who were talking about the lab leak hypothesis last summer were saying things like it will get worse in the South now in the hot because they're going to go inside with air conditioning and it will get worse in the winter in the North because people will go inside for heat. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. And why did they say that? Because a virus that passes zoonotically in nature is in a sense overcoming things like ultraviolet radiation, right? Like it, it exists outside in the world. A virus in the lab doesn't have to deal with that. And so there's a certain sensitivity that lab created viruses have to ultraviolet radiation, to the sun, to being outdoors that they would not have inside. And what you had in coronavirus was a virus that spread very quickly and very easily inside but seemingly doesn't pass at all outside. This would have had a huge effect on policy. I, I think of all these places shutting down beaches and shutting down outdoor events and shutting down gatherings and, and all the mental health implications of that. If we had fully understood that this came from a lab, we could have had a very different public health response, right? I think also having understood this to come from a lab and the way that things are uh, tested out in a lab, basically on tissue, right? does this virus attack tissue, would have had, I think, a very different response, particularly among people who were asymptomatic. I think one of the long-term things that we're going to learn about, and I have no insight on this, I, I, I don't know, but we're going to learn the long-term ramifications of COVID here as we get into the long-term. And one of the things that I think we should be concerned about is this tissue damage issue. It's very clear that COVID-19 attacks people in novel ways, right? It attacks tissue, very consistent with what a lab engineered virus would do. And, you know, you think of yourself as a young 20 year old person who contracts COVID and you're like, I have no symptoms. And that's probably true because if we look at you and we degrade your heart capacity by 10%, and we degrade your lung capacity by 10%, and we degrade your nerve capacity by 5%, or your kidney capacity by 5%. As a healthy young person, you probably wouldn't sense that. You know, I'm 48. I remember losing my sight. Not, I haven't lost my sight, but I remember my sight going bad. And it's this uh, gradual process, right? Where you're like, I've got great vision. I'm, I'm young. I'm healthy. I've got great vision. And then pretty soon you find yourself <laughs> squinting at things and not able to see things. And then someone puts a pair of glasses on your head and you're like, oh my gosh, I had, you know, what, what happened to my sight? you're a young person out doing athletic things and you find yourself a little bit slowed down and you're like, well, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not 18 anymore. I'm 24, you know, but whatever, is that you losing 5% of your lung capacity to a virus that you were asymptomatic at, but just attacked your flesh in a sense? Possible. I, I, I feel like, you know, if we had understood this, I think it would have changed a lot of people's reaction to the virus and how they handled the, uh, you know, the quarantines and the shutdowns and masks and social distancing and all this. Asymptomatic, I, I think ultimately could maybe perhaps not mean without symptoms or without, uh, let me say that a different way. Asymptomatic may not mean without damage, right? And I think the interesting thing, and interesting, I put in air quotes there, 
the thing that we're going to learn here is what happens if you can get this like a seasonal flu or like a seasonal cold and you suffer 5% damage one year and two years later you suffer 5% damage again and three years later you suffer 5% damage again to some vital organ. You know, what? what is the long-term like recurring impact of this virus? I, I don't think we know. I think if we had known that this came from a lab, we possibly or we likely would have reacted very differently to it and also to the kind of lack of uh, overt symptoms that uh, people, you know, took took wide note of. I say all this because there's this fascinating article in The Guardian, uh, came out June 1st. It was by a guy named Thomas Frank. It's an editorial. The title of it is, If the Wuhan lab leak hypothesis is true, expect a political earthquake. And he goes through and he kind of talks about in this article all of the so-called experts and what they told us and when they told us things and really this kind of crisis of expertise. And I want to read this one paragraph to you because it's kind of the key takeaway for me in this article. And I I think it's really true. And I, I think it's something we all need to respect. Let me quote from this quote, because if the hypothesis is right, it will soon start to dawn on people that our mistake was not insufficient reverence for scientists or inadequate respect for expertise or not enough censorship on Facebook. It was a failure to think critically about all of the above, to understand that there is no such thing as absolute expertise. Think of all the disasters of recent years, economic neoliberalism, destructive trade policies, the Iraq war, the housing bubble, banks that are too big to fail, mortgage-backed securities, the Hillary Clinton campaign of 2016. All of these disasters brought to you by the total self-assured unanimity of the highly educated people who are supposed to know what they're doing, plus the total complacency of the highly educated people who are supposed to be supervising them. Unquote. That's the end, the end of that paragraph. I think that that is rhetorical gold. It's interesting to me because what we have here in, in reaction to this, and I, I think this is a very thoughtful article. I think there's a lot of depth to it. And I think there's a lot of, I mean, go read it. There, there's a lot here that make it worthy of your time. It's not an attack per se on expertise, right? Whenever we have these things where we are having these conversations about the failure of experts. They'll always be, you know, the person who say, well, when I have, you know, a broken arm, I want to go to a doctor, you know, (laughs) you know, when I have cancer, I want to be treated in a hospital. I don't want to be treated by non-experts as if the idea of expertise is, you know, suspected in all conditions, in all places. Of course we want experts. The book I have coming out in September is called Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. I go in and I systematically disassemble all of the things that engineers have wrong and basically like embedded into the profession wrong, like huge reforms that need to be made. But if I'm building a bridge today, do I want a hundred people off the street to do that for me? Or do I want an engineer? Of course I want an engineer, right? There's this very interesting kind of dynamic or interesting balancing, let's say, between the value and the quality and the application of expertise and this expanding notion of what it means to be an expert or what it means to have expertise. I feel like this is the fine line we walk here at Strong Towns. And it's, it's quite frankly, why the lab leak thing last summer made me so irate. These you know statements from experts that were clearly not true given to us by journalist experts who, by the way, should know better, should be asking tough questions, should have smelled this rat in a sense or or had the red flags uh, pop up for them the same way they did for me. I'm an engineer. I've got a little bit of a science background. I know the scientific process. There are journalists who know as much or more about science as I do. They should have been able to figure this out. Why did this happen? I feel like this is a line we walk here at Strong Towns. I want to put this statement out there and I want you to marinate in it 
after this podcast is done. There is no such thing as absolute expertise. There is no one who is like an absolute expert. There are people who know a lot of things. And there are people who have very depth of knowledge in, in one place. And there, there are people who have broad knowledge in, in many places. But there's no one who is like an unquestioned expert, who in a sense has so much gravitas, so much expertise, so much knowledge as to be like borderline omnipotent in a certain field of knowledge or study. It just, it just doesn't exist. And it doesn't exist because it can't exist. It's impossible to exist. At Strong Towns, we have this thing we call the four-step process. And I feel like it is an acknowledgement that experts cannot be absolute. Experts cannot have absolute expertise. I don't know. Let me, let me make sure we're all on the same page of what the four-step process is. It's this idea that capital investments should be the byproduct of bottom-up observation. So step number one, if you're going to make a capital investment in your community, you want to go out and spend money building infrastructure. How do you determine like where you should spend this money? Well, step number one is to go out and observe where people struggle. Uh, step number two is to ask yourself the question, what is the next smallest thing we can do to address that struggle. Step number three is to do that thing. And then step number four is to repeat the process. The idea of taking many, many small steps and allowing your humble observation to drive each step and then allowing the reaction of, of people, of humans, of, of the people living in the habitat that we're assembling, allowing them to respond in real time to the things that you do and, and to use their response as your feedback. You know, if you try to make this street a little bit easier to walk, do people actually walk there? If you make this change, does it, does it, you know, cause some type of disruption? Like the, the idea is to watch this stuff happen in real time, essentially the scientific process as, as applied to uh, design of human habitat, design of our space, right? The four-step process is an acknowledgement that there's no such thing as absolute expertise, but it's also a recognition that there's a role for experts. There is a role for experts in this process. It's, it's more uh, as a humble servant, aware of their own limitations, as opposed to, you know, being godlike beings with some kind of mystical insight. You know, I am the expert. I know things. I know there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. I know that this did not come from a lab. I know, you know, this, this, this. A true expert is aware of the limitations of their own knowledge, right? I think the, the Strong Towns approach is really fully embracing this idea of a role of experts being the humble servant, the person who has unique knowledge and unique understanding, but recognizes that there is a limit to that understanding. There's a limit to that knowledge just because we are human. The way that this uh, lab leak stuff has manifested until very recently, I mean, you have John Stewart now who is just genius at being able to say things to people in a way that will allow them to acknowledge it. I tend to be more conservative than, than progressive, particularly as you get higher up the food chain of, of government. I found John Stewart for years just great to watch. I mean, he would lampoon people that I, you know, back when I more identified with teams, he would lampoon my team in a way that I could actually accept and listen to for the most part. A little bit different than Stephen Colbert today, who just comes across often as just like a pure partisan John Stewart has this way, but his genius was always when he would make liberals feel uncomfortable. I think a really great, insightful court jester, which I say that with reverence, not with disrespect. I think a genius court jester is able to say things to you that you don't want to hear in a way that you can actually hear it. And so you have him out now talking about the lap leak hypothesis. And I think that will like loosen things up, right, in terms of this conversation. But prior to that, and I, I think if you go back a year, you really have our cultural dialogue distilling a lot of these things, whether it's the second Gulf War, whether it is uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, defund the police, or the pro-cop kind of factions, whether it is, you know, Trump or not Trump, whether it is, you know, this lab leak hypothesis or not, you have our cultural dialogue kind of distilling things 
into basically two classes. One is the populist masses with their pitchfork going to go in and light the universities on fire and, and, you know, send everyone with glasses. <laughs> I'm referencing historically uh, things that happen in other places, but, you know, go around and, and all the learned people should be thrown out because, you know, they've led us astray. And the other faction of, you know, we got to rid ourselves of the stupid hicks. I care for poor people, just not the ones that vote Republican. I care for uh, the disadvantaged, just not the ones who tend to be conservative. I want all people to be successful, just not the ones that live in red states. You know, this idea that the country should be run by educated elites and that everyone else is, you know, a basket of deplorables in a sense. I think if we allow our country to be distilled that way, if we allow our cultural conversation to be distilled in that way, we're going to all suffer and we're going to all lose. We don't need a cultural revolution. We don't need a pitchfork uprising. What we need more than anything else is this bottom-up blending of radical thinking applied incrementally, right? With respect for data, with respect for lived experience, with respect for the scientific process. To me, that's what Strong Towns is, right? It is a radical rethinking, but it's not a radical rethinking of, you know, let's take everything that we've done, we can see that it's wrong, let's throw it all out, and we are so much smarter now, we know so much better than everybody else who's come before us, and so we are going to recreate things in our image, in, our, in the vision that we have. And if you stand in our way, you are ignorant, you are lesser, get out of our way. That, that is not strong towns. That is not a, a doable proposition. But neither can we be this notion that experts have no role, right? Like, look what they did in Iraq. Look what they did with the lab leak. They created coronavirus. We should not be listening to experts. Throw them out. You know, we would be better off having, uh, you know, the people in the neighborhood come out and fix their own streets and do their own stuff. And we can decide this from the bottom up. We've never been that. And we never will be that, right? There is a role for the expert. There is a role for the person with kind of unique knowledge. But it has to be paired with a humble respect of our own limitations, the limitations of our own knowledge. It has to be paired with a, a modesty and a humility that would have us see ourselves be servants of others. It has to be paired with the scientific process and this idea that we would have a hypothesis that we would put forth about how we think things should be. And then we would use the tools we have to go out and test that hypothesis. And we would say the test teaches us a, a limited amount about the world. Now we are, are confident that we know this. And so we'll scale it up incrementally to the next increment. And we'll use that bit of knowledge to iterate over and over and over. There's a role for experts here. And there's a huge role for non-experts. There's a huge interplay here between people who have experiences and opinions and ideas and you know that interaction with people who we want to consider experts if you are someone who is an expert whatever your realm is i feel like there is a natural tension that we all have to deal with in knowing the limits of our own expertise in uh, our willingness to not only listen to others, but consider, genuinely reflect on other ideas. I'm standing here as a flawed person, uh, acknowledging that, you know, I don't live up to this either, always. You know, I am, I'm very quick to dismiss often things that seem extraneous to me or, or, or not relevant to me. I know that's a fault of mine and I, I struggle with it. I, I work against it. I, I think when we get into the realm of strong towns and we get into the realm of city building, we get in the realm of making places, it's incumbent on us to, in a sense, reject the idea that there is some kind of universal top-down uh, way of doing things. You know, Whether it's interstate highways or zoning, or you know the American Jobs Plan, or whatever the Republican roadmap alternative to the American Jobs Plan, 
we need to truly take our experts and get them out of the top-down mindset, get them out of the idea that somehow you know, their realm of knowledge is desperately what's needed to transform everything into a, you know, a, a better tomorrow and get them working incrementally, get them working humbly, uh, get them out as servants to people living in neighborhoods and allow that, that human knowledge to not only be the feedback in our scientific process, uh, but to be, you know, the data and the inspiration and, and, and the drive for what we're out there doing. This is a tough one. It's a fine line to walk, but as Nassim Taleb has said, we all have to learn to live in a world that we don't fully understand. And there's a certain tension that comes from uh, acknowledging that you don't understand the world. There's a certain tension that comes from, you know, you, you give up a certain amount of control by recognizing that, you know, not only are, are you not in control, but, but there's a huge limitation to what you can know and understand and do. That's a big step. But once you take that step, it opens up so many more things. I need you all to take that step with me. I need you all to acknowledge that the role of the expert is to be the humble servant. And the role of all of us in society is to participate from the bottom up in, you know, not only this revolution of strong towns, but, but just starting with the idea that our block, our neighborhood, our city, our place, uh, we can make better. We can make better step by step. We can make better little by little, uh, but we have to do it together. It won't be a pitchfork revolution. It won't be uh, elite rule foisted upon us. If we try either of those things, it's not going to work. It's got to be some blend of the two, and it's going to be up to us at the local level to make that blend. You can do it. I'm uh, supporting you. I'm inspired by you. Keep at it. Keep doing, friends, what you can to build a strong town. I'll talk to you again soon. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.